We are reading a 2,000-year-old book, Philippians. Uh, we go back almost 2,000 years, and uh, we're at a point of learning that every book has a snapshot of Christ. And so if you go into Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find pictures of Jesus that are uniquely focused on certain aspects of God. And so Matthew, you'll find Matthew as the tax collector who's been marginalized and ostracized by the society because you couldn't trust a tax collector. Still can't. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but Matthew talks about compassion and the kingdom of God, of one who's brought in, who knows grace more than any other of the other gospel. He talks about learning to love those with a fullness of joy, a, a, a compassion, and to go out to bring in those who are marginalized. He talks about the king and his kingdom. Mark talks about Jesus being a servant. And you read Mark, and all of a sudden Jesus heals somebody, and then immediately he goes there and heals somebody, and then he, the next day he's there. And he, he, you always see Jesus on the move because he's a servant giving himself fully. And you see the king who serves, and then you come to Luke, the doctor. What do doctors do? They dock. Uh, is that a verb? But, uh, but because he's a doctor, he's aware of the human body, and Jesus as a man, as a human, he gets tired, he eats, he sleeps. You see Jesus touching more, healing, healing more in, uh, in, the, in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But he's, he's a man. He's a king who serves. He's the man who, as John talks about, is divine. This is not just an ordinary man. He's God himself. It's God incarnate who comes down to grace us with a whole new way of thinking. And that thinking is what, I mean, you go through the New Testament, you pick up all these other snapshots of Christ. But when you come to this book of Philippians, there's one thing that I want to highlight and think about with you today is this thing of joy. It's the joy of Christ. It's the joy that he said, uh, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Because until then, they didn't have the name of Christ to ask in the name of Christ, freely, fully, boldly entering into the throne room to say, hey, Dad, Papa, God Almighty, would you blank? And then you, you pour out your heart because you find God is more than you think he is and more uh, kind than you think he is. He's more than... Your conception. He is everything you want him to be. And you come into the book of Philippians, and Paul's theme in the book of Philippians is the book, is the theme of joy. It's the joy of Christ. And so I'm going to look at uh, things with you this morning. I'm going to take you back then to introduce to the believers that Paul was introducing these themes to in the sense that the Philippians were learning about the joy of Christ. And so this topic this morning is going to, we're going to go back and then forward. So if you get a little woozy, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll come to stability here in a minute. Last week I mentioned a key phrase. And so I wanted to go back to highlight this theme because it is so crucial. And C.S. Lewis picks this up 
And he talks about it's the attitude of our heart where we think life is, but it's the attitudes that we have towards our desires. And once you understand these desires that you have embedded in your heart that are not fulfilled, there's a longing, a yearning, an ache that Lewis would say is that ache of joy that leads you into a pursuit of the source of joy. And so it's the attitudes that, that Christ had that if you imitate Christ, then you follow his thinking about where joy lies. But it's this attitude that Jesus had that he gives to the Philippians and he gives to us through the Apostle Paul and others. But the key lesson last week is that we don't focus on those joys. As Lewis would say, like in Cupid, Valentine's Day, there's a shaft, and that piercing pleasure of, of being loved, uh, that pleasure, that excitement, that, that experience that wonderfully bliss blisses, is that the verb? Blesses, blisses, that you, you realize that something has taken place in your heart, in your mind, that somehow lifts, lifts you up. And that shaft of joy is the very mark of the Holy Spirit touching you, calling you, inviting you because of these desires of your heart. And yet if you don't, if you don't understand this attitude, your focus will be on the joy and the experience of the gift rather than taking that gift and learning that it's a, it's a message from the giver. And there's thousands and thousands of blessings that God wants to send our way, but that fullness will be missed if we only focus on the one little gift. I want this, I want this. And so the attitude towards the giver is more important. And every gift you get is a signal, a sign that says, hey, I sent that to you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but last week I tried to practice this in a way. Uh, things, a number of things, and... Um, and I didn't tell you this, Sandy, so I'm going to not put you on the spot. But, but when I was studying, when I was studying last week, I uh, I brought over a frozen bowl of chili, uh, and I microwaved it. And here's this chili, and I was eating that during lunch, and I thought I could think about the chili as Sandy's. Sandy prepared this chili back home and she brought it up so, she, so I put it in the freezer and I brought it up. So I'm enjoying the chili and I could be focused on the chili or I could be thinking about something else. My wife made this. My wife is caring for me. And the chili then represents not the chili that's going to nourish me but it's the fact that this chili represents my wife's caring for me. I could be thankful for the chili of course and I could be thankful for the one who made the chili. And that's the idea that you shift, you shift off, you receive this gift, but then you have to renounce and say there's more to it than the gift. And you have this attitude of saying, gosh, somebody gave this to me. In Japan, before we eat, we say the phrase, itadakemasu. And that means, you can say it, itadakemasu, or eat a dog's mess, or eat a duck at mass 
or however you remember that, but itadakimasu means I'm going to receive something from somebody else who worked or purchased or produced it, and I get the blessing of it. And therefore, it's never being stuck in the thing, it's being rerouted to the giver of those things. And so you're always aware of that fact, that it's the attitude to enjoy these things without trying to consume, control, or try to uh, manipulate those things to find security in those things. Last week in my quiet time in Isaiah, the Lord sent a shaft of, of joy saying to me through a Bible study that uh, just in a sentence, Jerry, you have to know where your security lies. And studying through Isaiah, I thought they had forgotten where their security was. But in your Bible study, God will send you those thoughts and the Spirit will bring to remembrance key phrases to keep focusing back on Him. So He's at work always calling you to focus back on Him. And that's what Paul said, I am confident of this very thing, Philippians. That the one who touched your heart, who sent the gospel to you, that now you are enjoying, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And therefore, it was about those longings of the heart. We looked at last week, the sensak, the German word, meaning that there's a craving inside of you. There's, a, there's something inside of you that doesn't have what you want. And if you get what you want, it's not what you want, because this is what you were built for, this is what you were built for. And lots of words, saudade in the Portuguese, well, we won't do that. But I wanted to review this because there's something going on in this book that is also going on in our hearts. And the idea is that if God isn't touching your deepest needs, then become, meeting your deepest needs becomes your God. And our focus is really wrong because we get blocked by, by a wrong focus. So to redirect that focus, um, you realize in the Old Testament that this joy could be lost. You could lose your joy. You could lose your sense of, of rightness with God because, because you were focused on the idols of the heart. And that's what happened in Israel. Israel was defeated by Babylon. And you remember they said they couldn't sit down by the captors, by those rivers, and sing a song because they were defeated. Jeremiah would talk about the lamentation that the joy is gone. Gone. How can you sing without any joy? And, and, and yet the Old Testament promises that if you return, if you return to joy, that there will be gladness and joy over those who repent. And, and yet we see that all the way through the, the, the Bible. But so as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, uh, Jerry, you just you don't get it. This is this is not a joyful time uh, with a virus and people out of work and people are hungry and you've got plane crashes and you've got the economies bad. Uh, this isn't the time where you're talking about trying to find joy in this. Uh, I don't know about you, but this it's it can get to you isolation disconnection. And so if you are not saddened or afflicted or affected by this 
season, this year, just this is a hard time for many people. And yet, and yet, I just want to point out, remember, remember what James wrote? And is this your attitude to consider it all joy, my brethren and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance? And let that endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is it easy for you to consider this season of conflict and confusion as a as a gift of joy? I mean, how would that how does that work? Peter does the same thing. He says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And those who are born again know this, that we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. But he says in verse 6, In this you greatly, greatly, did I say greatly? Greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. Well, there's joy under under a fire, but but James would talk about this. Peter talks about that. That this testing, this proof of your faith, is precious. There's something that God's doing in purifying our hearts. And yet, Paul would Paul would pick up on James and what Peter says and said, "We have been made right with God because of our faith, and we have peace with God because of our faith. And through faith, we have received." Uh, God's grace, and that grace we stand, and he says right there in Romans, we are full of joy because we expect to share in God's glory. Now, again, go back to this week. Was this the joyful week for you? Is this the attitude that the, that, that the source of joy is making you feel this overwhelming more about Jesus, what I know. You you want to know more about Christ. And yet, I, I want to submit to you that there's something that Paul knew that he wants you to know, that he wants me to know. There's something that God is doing in your lives to, to bring you back to the sense of joy. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, that that your joy would be made full. And so understand that God sends these shafts of joy, these shafts of desire, but he wants to fulfill them not in the circumstance or even to change the circumstance, but to use the circumstance to tell you that he's with you in all these things. And yet as we go on, we think about joy, it's a prominent, prominent theme in the Bible. And yet when you say, what characterizes the Christian is that the, it's not just the happiness. There's something deeper than the happiness. There's a sense of joy that comes about because grace has touched you in such a way that you rest. Noah and the ark. I learned this week a fun thing. Noah's name means rest. And so to rest in his presence, to rest in his knowing, to rest in the fact that you don't have to worry because God knows where you are. God sees where you are. Joy then 
is, is a, a powerful, powerful theme. It's used, uh, eight, it's used 400 times, 400 times throughout the Bible. It's used uh, 40 times in the Gospels. It's used 80 times in the New Testament. It is a primary theme that the Lord wants to disciple you in and me, as he does with the Philippians. And so, therefore, that, that theme that we hear and we sing, uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, tie strength with joy because you've got this giver of gifts who's giving to you the, the very uh, Son of God that you can handle, move through anything. And that's what Philippians is all about. Philippians is the book where Paul's going to say, how do you live your life? You live your life in the presence of God. And that life is the, that life that desires God is the life of joy. Well, that's a summary of last week and a couple other things thrown in. But now I want to move back into Philippians. And I want you to think for a minute. I want to take you, uh, let me put on my professor's hat here for a minute and take you back because I want you to see something. And This is what I want you to see, that that which they were struggling with back then is exactly the same thing that we're struggling with today. But there are different things that are affecting us. But going back, the gospel is moving out of Jerusalem, out of Antioch, and he's moving out west. And as he's going into Greece, you're in a non-Jewish thinking world. Greek, Roman, and others uh, as you go around the world. But here the gospel is moving, is moving out. And this is what was interesting. And I want you to put yourself in the mindset. I'm reading in Isaiah. I've been two months. I'm still in chapter 14. I'm, I'm moving. But Isaiah takes place back in 700, 2,700 years ago. Isaiah writes the prophecy. That's the prophecy about Babylon, this great empire that comes in and destroys Israel because Israel forgot their God, totally forgot their God. And they were taken captive. But that was taking place... And there are three times when, when Babylon goes in to destroy Israel. But I wanted you to point out, I wanted to point out a couple of things. We don't tend to think historically as Americans. We tend to think future. We don't go back in the past so, so much. Other countries do. But in 650, the time when Isaiah is still around, and Jeremiah and Amos and those minor prophets, there was a guy named Draco. You don't know about Draco, except if you hear uh, Lord um, uh, Harry Potter. Uh, and so Draco was the first legislator who made laws in Greece. 650, he was the one that says, you know, you just can't have these blood feuds and family fights, and we've got to get some semblance of order. And so he was the one that began to legislate law and order. And, but Draco, where you get the word draconian laws, was heavy-handed. And if you did anything that was evil, probability was that you would be executed and die. It was very, very dark times back 650. So they're, they're still trying to organize this world. And then you have the Greeks coming in, trying to figure out the world. 
So you have an examiner who's trying to ask these questions. Well, what is this universe all about? And so they had these ideas that, that the way the world works is you've got this, these earthly elements of wind, fire, and water, and air. And, and so they're thinking about life. Again, this is 610. Then comes the first philosopher, Thales. And Thales begins this questioning that really becomes characteristic of the of the Greek mind. Now, keep in mind that this philosophy of trying to figure out life, is we still do this, of, of how, how life works. But Thales was the first philosopher. Again, 585, as he moves into Protagoras and then uh, the Pythagorean, the mathematicians, as they're trying to piece together, these are thinking people. And the thinking people will lead up into the time of Socrates, which is 480. Now, I just want to put these together because the Bible is going on at the same time. What's going on in Israel, these things are taking place in, in Greece. There are things taking place over in China, and, 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 and Confucianism and Buddhism are still growing. And there are things taking place in Egypt and, and with, the, uh, with the Egyptian mathematicians and the architects and engineers. There's lots of things going on around the world, but this book is talking about what's going on locally in Philippians. But in this world of thinking, this idea that if you're Greek and you're back there and with this pagan world that Paul goes into, he finds that um, there are people like Aristotle who are asking questions. You've got Socrates and you've got Plato. And the way they would think would be that religion and philosophy and science were all together connected. And there wasn't a difference. But the philosophies would talk about, as you're trying to figure out the essence of things, it would be about your thinking about things. Science would be talking about the realm of the physical things. And then the spirit, the religious, would talk about the realm of the spirit, the psyche. Philosophy would work on wisdom. Science would work on power. Religion would work on love. But it was an integrated system. So there are questioning people still trying to learn about these things. Philosophy would talk about ethics and where we came from, the existence of things, and how you know things that are, how do you know what you know? So truth and, and ideas would be part of the philosophy, but science would look at medicine, pathology. they look at, at pharmacology, engineering. How do things work? Religion, though, would talk about meaning and their values. Now keep that in mind, because here comes Paul, and he's going to be talking about these different realms. And so you'd have this discussion where Paul would come to Greece and they would find analytical, logical questioning and, 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 and pursuing each other with a sense of, huh, tell me more. And the idea that God is working in this pagan world that doesn't have the Holy Spirit to guide them, Paul is going to bring them something brand new that doesn't fit into their categories. And then as a result, the, the Greeks were the foundational thinkers. The Romans came in and they can began to conquer because there were so many different answers and opinions that the Greeks couldn't come together. It was only in Rome 
that Rome bought, brought the whole world together under one authority, Caesar. Well, jump to 1,500 years later, Rene Descartes split. And we have been in this split ever since, that science and religion don't mix. The philosophy and religion don't mix. We have now separated church and state. We have now uh, fragmented our worldviews, and the connection and coming back together uh, really is an issue. But back then, the gods and goddesses were very much part of this questioning, very much part of the influence, so much so that Draco, when he would come in, would say, you would have to take into account religious thinking, moral thinking. And they were, they were trying to work out the ethics. So here's Draco, and here's Thales, and Anaximenes, and Heraclitus. I just want you to hear that these were religious people, not just philosophical people. And here's what the Apollonian tenets were. Apollos and Dionysus, the sons of Zeus. Look at the number one. Heed the religious duties with piety. And so Paul would meet religious people, pious people, spiritual people. Nurture the family. Impartiality. Act in accordance with justice. Never tire from learning. And be aware of your shortcomings. Notice what this focus is. These Greek people were trying to be self-improvement. They were working on developing, growing, learning. Put attention on what you do. Have an open ear for everyone. Master control of your emotions. Make good use of your means. Practice kindness to create harmony. Always be yourself truly. And in this context, in this context, Paul would speak to a very mindful people, educated people, thinking people. And, and so you have guys like Socrates says, if you're not thinking about your life, you don't have a life worth living. And in that context, if you go back in, the Greek, in Greece, uh, they had a variety of religious practice, but there was no one dominant authority. No one who gave the word. No unified belief system holding them all together. So it was all relative. There were city-states. They were just all over the map. Greek society was so individualized and so fragmented. There's no priest, no priesthood, no system, no, no com, uh, comprehensive way of thinking about the world. So it was kind of like America. Every man had his own way of thinking. But argument and debate and disagreement and philosophy ruled the day. But when they would come together, what they would talk about mostly was war. Mostly was how do you get how do we beat? How do you win? So victory and winning was an important value at all costs. There were the other things as well. But here's a question I was thinking. Because it was a question that Sandy and I had to deal with in Japan. Because the concept that Paul was going to bring was the salvation of a Savior who died for sins uh, on, on the cross to redeem people back into the kingdom. But you had this concept of sin. Well, did the Greeks have a concept of sin? Do you know? Raised eyebrows. They did. The Greeks had the concept of sin. It's where, we, where Paul gets this word, harmartia, which means missing the mark. 
but it means that which is going to be uh, taken advantage to destroy the hero, to destroy the enemy. The character flaw or the error of a tragic hero that leads to their downfall. The idea of sin for the Greeks was it was a failure, a failure, a moral failure to achieve the true expression and to preserve his due relationship to the rest of the universe. It was mainly attributed to being stupid, being ignorant. You made a mistake. In this context, Paul comes and he speaks of something that the Greeks did not know about. It was about Christ, God, who wants to come to integrate the whole thing, bringing back the world that had fallen and was separated from Christ. And therefore, Paul would say, it's the love of Christ that compels me. It's the joy that Christ would have in seeking out the lost and bringing the lost back into the fold. And therefore, Paul would introduce to the Greeks a concept that there is a Holy Spirit, that God himself would become a man and put your life back together in a relationship with him. And if you walk with the Spirit, you won't carry out the humanistic desires of the fragmented, conflictual self. And so Paul was bringing something to the Philippians that was brand new. They didn't know this. And Paul was the shaft of joy, like you are a refreshing messenger when you announce the good news of Christ the Messiah. Indeed, at Christmas, we talk about joy to the world. Well, this joy comes in the form of a baby who grew up to be the man, who grew up to be the king, who served the man, who was God, who was the Lord of the universe. And Paul knew him. The Philippians didn't. They were just beginning. But remember what that Philippian jailer after the earthquake said? He had a question. What must I do to be saved? It meant that somewhere along the line, this Roman pagan learned about salvation, and he asked the question about, he asked this question, what do I must, what must I do to be saved? And therefore, the salvation question was prominent on the, his mind anyway. It's no longer prominent on the American mind. We've lost that question. We don't even think about it sometimes. We don't even talk about it sometimes. And therefore we remain lost. But the Greeks did not have the Holy Spirit. And believer, brothers and sisters, we do. And therefore, this idea that God calls us to walk with the Holy Spirit, to understand where our security is, to understand that he sends a pleasure, you understand that the Spirit of God is going, drawing you back to the giver, This is what Paul wants us to understand as he goes into this idea of joy. This unsatisfied desire will find its source of joy only in this relationship with Christ. And this joy is a byproduct, not of getting your circumstances rearranged, not in getting what you want in terms of chili, but there's something far beyond that he wants to send into your heart, the shaft, that it is a gift. Joy is a gift. It's not earned. You don't work for it. It's not the end goal. I want to be joyful. No, no. It's, it's a byproduct of the fact that your relationship in your heart is made right with God. 
And once your heart is made right and the Spirit of God fills you, there's rest. There's an ache that he says, I know this is calling me back and I can surrender to that. And therefore, this gift given by God is this attitude of I want to receive and I want to receive everything the Lord sends to me. And I want to be able to recognize that and return it back to praise. And the more he blesses, the more praise and prayer. This is the life that Paul wanted for the, the people in the New Testament. And so understand, for Paul, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that brings joy. It is not your quiet time. It's not going to church. It's not doing good things. It's, it's some of those things, of course. But primarily, joy is found. The strength of joy is found in the strength of your relationship. And therefore, God's word, Jesus promised to you, produces joy. I've come that you might have life. And whatever is lost, if you've lost your keys, you go looking for the keys. If you've lost your sheep, you go looking for the sheep. But when you find these things, it's a joy because you found them. Believer, when there's something wrong and missing and lost in your own heart, understand that the Holy Spirit wants to recover those things and restore those things so that you have joy. His word produces it. Worship prompts it. Obedience discovers it, and suffering, suffering refocuses it. Because suffering will put you in a position to say, I want more than just out of here. I want you. And so you understand that joy uh, was found only in Christ, and the Philippians did not know that. But that's when Paul begins to speak. When he says in chapter 1, God is at work in you. He's begun a good work. And in chapter 2, look at the joy of Christ who gave himself for other people. And so it wasn't in being what the Greeks would say, fulfilled or actualized as a man. It's being in the fact that who you are as a man, who you are as a woman, you can love and give yourself to other people so that you're not focused on yourself. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the fact that there's a surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And that value, that meaningful value that you are called by my name. You are forgiven for your sins. You are made right with God. And in that rightness, there's that settled shalom peace. If you've had that taste of joy, no matter what circumstances you go through, the promise of God is sure. He's the anchor of your soul, and that's there. Nothing should be able to touch your joy. You are called by Jesus Christ personally, by name. You belong to him. And if you substitute the chili, the gift, for the relationship, your heart's going to be blocked and limited. Last week I said, what blocks our love? Well, our lack of knowing the love of God. We don't have that worship. We don't know that joy. Neither did the Philippians. And therefore it was a discipling process, a growing process. It's our attitude toward those desires. 
It's, Lord, send the shafts. Let me be aware of the fact that when your spirit pierces me, give me the grace to respond to you. Not like the ten lepers who were healed and only one returned back. But that gift of joy, that gift that's received, is going to be at war with the flesh. Those things that you do worship. And therefore, don't be surprised that there's a struggle and you have to let go of things in order to hold on to something new. And as you think about worry, what benefit is worry? You can't, you can't gain anything. You're afraid you're going to lose everything. But if joy is your focus, you quit demanding that circumstances change and you accept and you surrender. And that means you're willing to wrestle and let go. And those are the things that Paul is trying to say to the Philippians. Christian, it is your birthright to know the fullness of God, the fullness of joy, as you walk in obedience and faith and trust. And that you turn yourself, finding that you are being loved with a love that you didn't earn, and therefore can never lose. It's this wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. And then as I turn to him, I run back to Jesus and I say, whatever your song heart wants to just, he loves you, embraces you. And if that isn't your source of joy, what is? If Christ isn't the strength the strength of Christ is the strength of your joy. And that's what he wants the Philippians to know. That's what I want to know. That's what I want you to know. That's what the book of Philippians is all about. Isn't that wonderful? And therefore, as we go back to what Paul said, it is the love of Christ that compels me. It's the love of Christ that compels me. Because we're convinced of this. Christ loves Christ loves you. Therefore, go tell the American philosophers, go tell the American scientists, go tell the American, uh, 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 what was the third one? Uh, Spirit, religious people, that it's not about philosophy or science, wisdom, power. It's about this relationship with Christ. And that's yours. That's yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your spirit knows exactly what we need in these times of real despair to find this joy in all circumstances, to find the fact that you are causing us to re-delight, to rejoice in you at all times because you have never left us and you will never leave us. Even till the end of the age, you will be with us. So Father, thank you for not only being our help, but thank you for being the one that gives us the joy of Christ. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And therefore, Father, I pray that you would disciple us in this theme of joy. Teach us how to let go and how to trust you in all these things. Again, we worship you. We value highly your word. And so, Lord, where we have struggle, help us to, by the grace of by the grace to let go. Let me trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.